there's a higher level of expectation that you should have from your real estate professional in the United States than you might expect from some other marketplaces internationally. So don't be afraid to ask those most basic questions. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. In Los Angeles, I'm Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Today, we'll be talking about the top questions to ask when vetting a real estate agent as an international investor buying U.S. real estate to be a part of your team on the ground in the U.S. So let's get into today's show. Today, the gentleman in the hot seat to provide us all you listeners with the cracking information is Robert Whitelaw. G'day, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Reid. Happy to be here. Robert is a real estate broker and realtor in Morgan Hill, California. He started in the industry way back in 1988 and has seen more than his fair share of what is right and what is wrong with the real estate business. Robert is also the host of one of the leading podcasts on iTunes called Real Estate Realities and is known in the industry as Robert the Real Broker Whitelaw. His show is a way for Robert to be honest about the real estate industry as a whole and give his honest insider info, which is exactly why I have him on the show. I only like to interview industry leaders who tell it like it is, no beating around the bush, and provide credible advice based on real-life experiences. So Robert, with that being said, can you tell us something that most people might not know about you, unrelated to being a successful podcast host, real estate investor, and real estate agent here in the United States? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a few things. I don't know how how sexy it all is <laughs> as uh, as I have gone through the process. You know, there, I, a lot of people don't realize that you know some of us do tend to do things other than just real estate. But early on, uh, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, so I actually studied to go to medical school, took the medical college admission tests, and all that other kind of wonderful stuff. And at the same time, uh, was also an emergency medical technician. So I was one of the folks who would drive around in an ambulance and respond to nine one one calls and that type of stuff. And in my more adventurous years in college, I was actually a private investigator for two years. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so I got to follow people around and watch them do uh – unpleasant things. And it was all very exciting. Fantastic. Well, that sort of segues into my next question. That is, you know, give us an in-depth look at your background and what motivated you to get started successfully being a real estate agent and a, you know, an investor and a podcast host, because going from wanting to study being a, med- a doctor, I should say, to jumping into real estate, that's a, that's a bit of a leap there. Yeah. You know what's funny is the real estate came into my life long before that. My grandfather served in World War II and immediately afterward became a real estate agent and then a broker. So I sort of grew up with the business always being there uh, in the background. And I'd, I'd go with my grandfather on different things and he'd always be talking about what he was doing. So in my mind, Real estate was my grandfather. Uh, the, the way he did business, the way he treated people was what I assumed the business was like. Uh, I always loved 
a lot of the things he loved about real estate. But for me, it's more of the uh, the overall umbrella. I like architecture. I like seeing how people use space, uh, and I liked the the process of acquiring real estate. And of course, it's hard to argue with the advantages of real estate as an investment tool. So, and that's you know what my grandfather did, and and it just seemed like a natural thing. So, for me and my family, in getting involved in real estate was more like potty training. It really wasn't a question of whether or not you'd do it. It was just a question of when. In college, I actually went ahead and sat for my real estate exam and, and took it. So before I actually graduated from college, I was already a licensed real estate agent. Um, and so it's really always been a part of my life no matter what else I've done. And, and for me, the big shock was after getting that license and hanging it in an office and working with other agents, discovering not everybody does it the way my grandfather does it. <laughs> That's interesting. So I, I know you and I were talking a little bit offline prior to this interview. And, and you know, tell us why you went and started uh, the podcast, because I know it was a way, as I explained in the intro, of you to sort of you know, flush out all what is wrong with the industry and right. what is your insider information that sort of other people too late, a, a layman's person wouldn't know because they're not in the industry. Yeah. So I think for me, sort of the, the seeds of that were planted, as I mentioned, in that very first year of real estate where I discovered folks didn't do things the way my grandfather did them. Uh, and I'm not talking about processes and I'm not talking about having no access to the internet. I'm just talking about basically the the kind of ethical and and professional approach to the business. So back in January of 2007, I had sort of reached my end point and I, I had gotten my broker's license and decided, you know, I want a way to vent. I, I want a place to basically just get all of this out of my system. And I actually started the show without ever using my real name, without ever trying to link it to my business. I really wanted it to be an honest venue for me to simply try to educate folks on what's wrong and what's right in the real estate business. And when I first started doing it, I hit some of the biggest things. Like there's a variety of different things that the real estate industry has gotten the general consumer to believe in that are really counter to their best interests. And so I started off sort of sort of beating that drum and sort of moved on just to everything else, ranging from relisting to uh, agents uh, making decisions in a negotiation uh, or a lack of negotiation that were more geared on the, the real estate agent's needs rather than the client's needs. Right, right, right. So, you know, I take it, Robert, that you work uh, purely in the residential industry. You're not, you're not in commercial? No, I am not in commercial. I dabbled in commercial for a, a very short period of time in the early 90s and decided that as bad as residential real estate is, commercial's worse. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not going to do that for now. Right, right, right. Robert, a big thing that I love pushing on this show is I'm a huge proponent of developing a credible team around any investor, whether whether you're investing interstate or you know a couple of hours away or even halfway across the globe. You need real estate is a team sport, and and I've spoken at length about that exact issue. And some of the biggest mistakes I see investors making, you know, is not having the best possible team around them. However, one of the most important team members is having a uh, you know a solid real estate agent. So, do you want to give us your insider info on what the top questions are when you're sort of vetting a real estate agent here in the United States? And, and really, what is that? What are you got to look out for as an investor? So, yeah, and I think that's the way you phrase the question is interesting because I really think there are two different sets of things you need to satisfy. One is you need to basically ask the exact same, exact same questions you would ask 
regardless of where you're coming from, right? If whether you're an American looking to find a real estate and you're here in your local town or you're an international buyer, you need to ask the same sets of questions to establish a base level of professionalism or what you're going to expect. Then there's a challenge from the international world. Now, I lived in the UK for a couple of years, so I'm familiar with the estate agent dynamic and solicitors on both sides and all those other kinds of wonderful things. But I think, and so folks, so I'm a little bit more tuned in to those folks, but you know, in the UK, you can get out of prison on Monday and be an estate agent on Tuesday. So there, there's a little bit of a difference. It's, it's more of a, a chauffeur relationship with access to keys. Very different in the United States, at least in terms of the fact that you can't just get out of prison and become a real estate agent the next day. You have a, you have a test you have to pass first and some background checks have to happen. So there's, there's a higher level of expectation that you should have from your real estate professional in the United States than you might expect from some other marketplaces internationally. So don't be afraid to ask those most basic questions like, what do the laws in your state require you to do for me? Because the other complication is treat each state within the United States as a different country in terms of what your expectations might be from your real estate agent. Because some states are going to have a broker like I am in California. Some states aren't going to have the idea of a real estate agent and a broker. They're the same thing. Some states are going to have lawyers involved just like you might see in the UK. So you need to sort of understand what the ground rules are there and what your agent is expected to do for you. What you want to get then at that point, once you sort of establish the international acclimation, I guess you could say, to the U.S. market, you want to get some idea of what they can actually do for you. And here's where some of the biggest problems come in. They're going to tell you that they were a top producing agent in year X. Well, 99.999% of the time, what they're basing that on should mean absolutely nothing to you as an investor. Uh, Because what they're probably telling you is, I made the most money in December of last year. Or I listed the most houses in, a, in some month of a few years back. Um, and just to let you – to kind of clue everybody into how ridiculous this top 1% stuff can get, way back when I started, this would be about probably the first year or two, so 89, maybe 90. Uh, I had joined an office at the same time as another gentleman, and he went ahead and put on his card top 1% agent. And I asked – and I knew how he was doing, and I knew that wasn't the case in any of the ways we measured it. So I asked him. How did you get that? And he said, well, I was the top listing agent in June for all agents over six feet tall. <laughs> and, there was, and the office had no problem with that. So it wow. was not only him willing to sort of put that on there given a very odd set of circumstances, but then the office he worked for was A-OK with him putting that on there as Jeez. well. So that, that's problem number one. Mm-hmm. Next is no one is ever going to tell you they're a top 1% agent for the reasons that you should care about. And here's what those are. <laughs> Sorry, I was a long, it was a long trip yeah, to what should have been a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> of all the escrows you opened for buyer clients in the last two years, how many of them successfully closed? So you're not asking how many deals did you close because the way they could tell you that is, well, I closed 50 deals last year. But what if they tried to close 100 deals? You'd, you'd kind of like to know that this person tends to get involved in escrows where they only close half of the time. That's bad news for you as a buyer. On average, how much over or under asking price have your clients paid for properties where you've helped, helped them acquire them? 
That's a perfectly valid question. And the next question would be, well, what was the normal market trend at that time? If it was people tended to pay 1% or 2% over asking price and this person was at 6% over asking price, well, that you use that to judge their ability to negotiate. However, if it was two, three points above asking price and they were getting two, three points below asking price, that should equally inform you into their skills and abilities in terms of getting a price that's going to work best for you. Right, right. Interesting. Robert, you just created some some absolute cracking information there. Just to recap for everyone out there who – this couple of questions that Robert was saying is that – People only were only advertising, or some people only advertise what they close on, but they might be actually involved in a lot larger escrows uh, that don't close. So, asking that question of, well, how many properties have gone to escrow and how many have actually haven't closed? The second one was you talked a little bit about what are people paying in the market, and is it you know a couple of percentage points over what is market? Is it a couple of percentage points what is under? And as a real estate investor, you're always trying to get something. You know, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. So, I think right. there was some cracking information there, Robert. So. What's one of the most frustrating things you see realtors do that put a bit of a tarnish on the industry? Is it that what you just explained with the the over six foot tall in June of two thousand and one? <laughs> is it that, or is it is it just in a general more more than that? Well, so I mean that would typically that that's that's the the good one. That's the if I jump if I ever decide to go to downtown Main Street or the High Street here in, in Morgan Hill and decide to preach the sins of real estate. Clearly, the top one percent mythology would absolutely be my lead. But the other things that kind of get me and that are that I'm constantly reminded of when I'm going through business is putting agents that put their own needs ahead of their fiduciary responsibilities. And this one's a little bit tougher to spot. It can be very subtle and it can be things that tend to happen in a more invisible way. Um, but then there are other things that are a little bit more detectable, like telling you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. I think that both buyers and sellers need to be clued into that. If you never hear anything that rubs you the wrong way from your agent, uh, and, and of course there's gradients, right? But if they're trying to give you honest market information and they're backing it up with data, if not, if it's not, if it's what you don't want to hear, then you should take that as a good sign that you're at least getting an honest assessment from that agent. You can choose to disagree for whatever reason you might have, but at least you know you're getting someone who's not just going to be sort of your own personal yes man. The other part I have a problem with, and this is a very common trend in real estate, is the gradual negating of negotiation skills, and they do this through very subtle ways, like. County trends. Uh, just to give you an example of what that means, here in Santa Clara County, there is a tradition that certain fees and charges relating to buying property get split between the buyer and seller or traditionally the buyer pays it or traditionally the seller pays it. And this changes from county to county. There's absolutely no legal requirement that they be split up that way. It's simply a tradition. So when I write up an offer, I don't care what the tradition is. I am going to write up my offer so that whoever the other party is, is set to pay everything. Let it be a negotiation point. Let us chat about it and see what makes sense as opposed to totally saying we're going to wash our hands of the critical process of negotiation by, by adhering to some sort of odd tradition that has somehow sprouted up. The other part, and this I think plays in particularly with investors is the lack of creativity when folks analyze deals and how to reach the end goal of your buyer. It's it's one of those things where everyone wants to sort of just be able to do it by the checklist, which can work great. If you've got an agent who thinks outside the checklist, you're in a much better position than one who does. 
the trick is finding that agent and, and understanding they're going to spend the time and effort to specifically apply their skills to helping you achieve your goals at the lowest possible price point. Right, right. And I think that's, that's, that's key, what you've just said there. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you going to no, say? No, no, no. You know, I had one more really on, on my sort of list of things, which would be to let uh, emotion trump reality. Now, typically, I think folks see agents as not being the problem, as buyers and sellers being the problem in terms of letting emotion uh, step in too much. But I'll t- And the only reason I bring this one up, I think, is because I've just gone through an escrow where it was the emotional side of the agent that was causing the most trouble versus anyone in the, else in the deal. It was, it was, and it was tough to, go, to navigate it without that individual – upsetting enough people that people would just want to walk away from the deal. So it's important to not let it affect you, but then also have the skills to diffuse it if someone else is doing it. Right, right, right. That's it. That's, you've touched on some very good points there because, you know, I buy real estate here all the time. So what you're saying is that throughout the United States from county to county, you're talking about um, who pays certain fees and um, at, at the closing table. Is that is that also to do with like the agent's fee or the, the buying and selling? It might, it might be 5% and you, they split it between the seller and the buyer. Is is that what an example of those fees that, you know, traditionally they split it, but, you know, by law, there's nowhere in the law that it says it has to be split. Is that what you're trying to say? No, but you know what? That's actually a really good point. Uh, here in California, the commission that's going to get, get paid is negotiated long before anyone makes an offer on the house. It's part of the agreement between the selling party and the agent. So in the listing agreement, it's set out how much the commission will be. And that's an agreement that's only between the listing agent and the seller of the property. So it's really an invisible cost to the buyer in terms of them not actually having a line item that says, I am paying the agents this amount of money. And I phrase it that way because you are, as a buyer, paying it in terms of the seller probably selecting a listing price based on the idea they know they have to pay this agent. So it's it's a cost that's passed on to you, uh, but it's not something that the buyer will be specifically charged for. Got it. Got it. And another thing you mentioned just before is that I know from personal experience that I w- when I work with real estate agents, I sometimes have to teach them how to underwrite a deal because as an investor here in the United States, they just they might just send me what they think looks good. So what questions to make sure that I need to be asking a real estate agent to make sure that they know that they've been they've worked with real estate investors before rather than just acting like a used car salesman and sort of just shoveling me anything that comes across their desk they think that looks like a deal? Yeah, you know, that that's actually a, a good question too. I, I think part of that depends on what what kind of questions that they're going to ask of you as much as what you might ask them. So when I speak to my investor clients, I, I ask them for the basic parameters of, of price range and that type of thing. But I also like to usually ask what the cap rate is, what the capitalization rate is they're looking for on their investments. And then ask also what what amount of down payment are you considering as a max and do you, you know as a percent of the purchase price, how high do you want that to go encroaching towards your maximum down payment? Those types of questions are showing that at least they're thinking in terms of what an investor is looking for. And it's also going to depend on what kind of interest the, the buyer has, the investor has, are we looking for someone who's strictly in it, interested in four plus units where, where they've, 
where they're getting multiple rental units? Is this strictly a single family residential proposition where they're going to look for a property that's going to generate long-term income from rental, you know, vacation things? And then with each one of those questions, there'd clearly be follow-up questions that would indicate that they're thinking in terms of what an investor is going to have to worry about relating to that property. Right, right. So I guess it's just sort of making sure that your agent or your realtor is asking you the correct questions as an investor here in the United States, right? Yeah, I think that's the more important part. But I, I think one thing I would do if I was someone interviewing an a, a investor or an agent who's saying they could be a good investor agent for you, send me an example of the data sheet you would send on a property that you think fits the goals I've told you about. You know, and I use a piece of software that anybody can get. It's not a magical, it's called the property evaluator. And I'm not associated with that company or anything. I just use it because it's good. And that puts out an excellent report that'll tell you everything you need to know about the property all the way up to the, to the servicing of the loan. So if they're not able to do that, if they're not able to give you a really, because, cons- you know, if for investors, it's about the numbers. Exactly. Uh, it's not about what color the kitchen is or whether there's marble <laughs> or tile. You know, investors want to know a couple of things. How do I get it? How do I make it a attractive, thing for whoever yes. my customers are and what's my cash flow going to be. Yep, yeah. And I, I guess typically you'd be in California, do you work with a lot of cash flow buyers or do you work with a lot of flippers who, who are rehabbers? That's actually a good question too. It depends on the market at the time. Right now, uh, flippers kind of made a really big jump back into the market mid last year, but have sort of evaporated from the market as we've seen prices change. Um, we've actually in Santa Clara County and in San Francisco, both we've had kind of a ridiculous resurgence in prices. Uh, so it's, it sort of has, has nudged them out of the marketplace, which has sort of moved investors into satellite communities that are around some of those higher demand areas, but not necessarily in them. And, you know, I typically, from my point of view, you know, there's two types of buyers, right? We, you know, there's the investor who comes to you, Rob, and says, hey, I want to make my money work for me. And then there's the retail buyer. So how often are you working with, is it like 50% of your time you're working with investors or, you know, is it 70-30 or what's that sort of split between the retail and the, the investor? You know, I think it's, I think it's probably 80-20. Okay. I think 80-20 is, is residential, solid residential retail folks, and then maybe 20% of the folks who I talk to are investor types. And, you know, and again, they, lately that's been a little bit less simply because the numbers just haven't worked in terms of a lot of these purchases. There's, there's so many offers per property that investors are, are often finding it difficult to purchase the property in a way that would be profitable for them unless they come in with all cash. So right now there, there's more of an all cash thing to try to get a lower price that just guarantees a close. Right, right. Interesting. And that sort of segues into my next question is that, you know, we had the crash back in 2008, 2009. You are in the, the you know, Morgan Hill area. What are you seeing? How are you seeing property prices rebound? You just sort of said that there's an evaporation of uh, flippers and, and investors in your particular market because the the price points are, uh, I guess, are growing so rapidly and they, they, they're pricing themselves out of the market and they've got to go to satellite communities around San Francisco and the Bay Area. So, how have we? Where are we at? Are we at before the crash, or are we? You know, where, how are we tracking right now? So if we stay focused sort of on what tends to be the international buyer interests, right? I mean, it tends to be, it tends to be a four-pronged pitchfork, right? Folks are either looking at Miami, LA, San Francisco, or New York. 
that those are the four cities that people outside of the U.S. seem to realize we have um, without worrying about places like Dallas or, or St. Louis or any of those kinds of things. So whenever I get international folks asking me about properties um, here, it almost is always San Francisco and I have to introduce them to the to the equally attractive areas south of San Francisco. But let's take a quick look. I went ahead and ran a couple of numbers that are literally hot off the press. I, I ran them this morning. And if we look at San Francisco County, so the entire San Francisco County area, way back in 2008 and 2009, we were seeing prices on average about $700,000 to $800,000 in 208. As of today, for the last month, prices are on average – 1.4 million. Whoa. <laughs> and, and that is not a subtle change over the last, uh, as I see this, I'm guessing that looks like about the last four months. It's a dramatic jump from just over a million to 1.4 million. So it's a hockey stick. And it's been a, it's been a general increase since January of 2012. And it's been above pre-crisis levels since towards the end of 2013 is when we finally – overwhelmed those numbers and started to go back. Now, if we look at Santa Clara County, there are counties between San Francisco and Santa Clara that are smaller, but Santa Clara County is more of the high-tech heartbeat, right, where, where, where a lot of the high-tech companies are. So let's look at that one. Back in 2009, we saw the numbers bottom out there at about 500000 on average for the average priced home. Today, it's just over a million. Wow, that's incredible. But what's interesting about that is that the peak was actually in 2015. So the average price of a home has actually gone down since mid last year. We'll see we'll see how that much that trend continues. But then there's one more number I kind of wanted to share just just so that because I think a lot of folks tend to mush these markets into each other. If we look at just so those two specific areas absolutely over what they were uh, at their lowest point and all, absolutely o- over what they were at their highest point prior to the drop. Prior to the drop in, drop in Santa Clara County, it was about 980000 and now we're well over that. If I run the numbers on the entire area that's covered by my multiple listing service, which is goes all the way from Marin, which is north of San Francisco, all the way down to Monterey, all the way to the Inland Empire, and for folks who don't know what that is, that's sort of a, a – a big flat area that's <laughs> inland uh, in California, <laughs> we have not reached pre-crash levels in terms of average prices. Interesting. So they peaked at about 670000 dropped to – and this, was, this is what has got some people making a lot of money – dropped to about 310000 in the drop. Mm-hmm. So that's more than a 50% drop. Yeah. And now they've recovered to about 600,000. Got it. Okay. So just to recap on all that, it's more like the individual parts is greater than the sum of the whole because if you look at a macro point of view, we're still tracking towards what we saw before 2008, 2009. But if you look at San Francisco, we've smashed it and we're well over it. And I I think that's key for everyone who's listening out there. 
don't be scared that that's oh well one you know San Francisco is such a hot frothy market that I'm not going to make any money in that market. Well, and as Robert said, you know a lot of the investors, local investors, have not been buying and flipping. But keep in mind that the, the macro point of view that there's always going to be other pockets of good solid real estate and, and California as a whole, not just San Francisco and LA uh, and San Diego. Um, you can find some cracking deals out there still, you know, below what we saw before 2008, 2009. So, Robert, with with all that being said, what what are your thoughts on the state of the real estate industry here, obviously, and and where are we headed? One thing I'd probably want to add is an, uh, just kind of relating to what we were just talking about is for international purchasers, there are still markets where there represents an opportunity. And obviously, if, if I wanted to be the self-serving guy, I'd come, hey, come buy out here in Morgan Hill and I'll help you out. Here in the United States, we have two different ways that foreclosures are handled. One is a judicial and one is non-judicial. Judicial means lawyers, judges, and a lot of bureaucracy gets involved in the process of dealing with a foreclosure. And I bring that up because Floro, Flor, Florida, that was, <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. I meant to say Florida is a judicial state. Right. So in terms of the locations where we're seeing the, the best investor opportunities relating to that is Florida. And it's, it's absolutely true in Miami. It's in Palm Beach. It's in Orlando, Orlando particularly. And anyone who wants to Google the real estate market for Florida can see this. There were some great articles last week on it. They're still working through that backlog of a lot of these foreclosures. And it represents a purchase point where I think there's a lot of headroom for folks to potentially make a lot of money on some Florida real estate if, they, if they've got a good local talented person to sort of walk them through that process. That's interesting. That's very, very interesting to say that some states, and let's just be clear here for all those listeners out there, we're talking about the residential side of right. real estate, not the commercial side. This is purely residential right. and and it's typically what I see here in the United States is a good metric of what they, you know, average house prices and, you know, how much is, how much new stuff is hitting the market and the supply and the demand. And, you know, the, we could go on for, for three or four episodes about how if there's too much supply and not enough demand, that's sort of we're tracking towards another recession, yada, yada, yada. So going back to my original question of where do you think we're headed, Robert? What is the state, what, what is the state of real estate like here in the United States right now, you know, from your point of view and what you're seeing on a day to day? Clearly sounds like it's very strong still and, and going towards a new highs by the sounds of it. In, in yeah. So it's, it, you know, it's very interesting because we've got, I think we absolutely have uh, seen a lot of places over achieve in terms of recovering prices that are really driving folks out. Uh, international folks coming from China, international folks coming from the Pacific Rim and other places where there have been huge uh, downsides to their stock markets. A lot of those folks have now backed off from a lot of their investments so, and they've been fueling a lot of the super high-end stuff. So uh, it's it's it, I think in terms of that market, if you're a high-end person for some reason, uh, which is a little bit more difficult to make money if you're trying to do it residentially – that's an opportunity for you. I see a weakening in that segment of the market based on that. However, I think that we've also sort of reached this point where it's 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 like a wave tank where you've got all these different waves across the country. And here in California, things are nuts and maybe some other places it's nuts. But there is still sea level, right, if everything reaches a certain level. And what that kind of spells for me is a relative flattening. And in some markets, that's going to be less noticeable because there hasn't been that much of a wave anyway. But here in California, particularly in my area, I think it's going to be a little bit more noticeable as prices stop creeping up as much as they have been. 
But what's interesting about that discussion is talking about what's happening with rentals. There is no end in sight on rentals. I don't, I don't see any market trends currently in many of the areas I serve that tell me rents are about to go down. That seems like a very solid segment of the marketplace. Another place that's very interesting, if you want to get geeked out on numbers, is Denver, where they are absolutely having a crazy market in terms of low inventory, high sales, multiple offers, tough to get a place. But all the apartment complexes are throwing incentives to renters to come and rent their apartments. So there's clearly the rental market there, at least as the in the apartment space, is struggling, but the home purchase space is totally underserved in terms of the amount of inventory they have. That's interesting. That's, that's, and, and as you talk about inventory and supply and demand, ha, what I mentioned before about when there's a lot, more, you know, a lot more supply in the market and less demand, is that typically when you see uh, we're, we're approaching uh, maybe another correction in the market? You know, I, last time around, I felt pretty puffed up by the fact I kind of called it on the downturn. <laughs> but it, the only reason was because I was proximal to it. Um, I was the guy standing right where the bomb went off, uh, along with a lot of other folks. I saw folks getting 110% loans. And this time around, I think the problems that will likely affect real estate tend to exist outside of real estate. Before it was bad lending practices, as it was creating subprime loans and artificially boosting the number of buyers. This time, if you can call anything real estate specific, it's the supply problem. So when I see news, for instance, that there is a new community that's going to bring 200 – I forget if it was 2,000 or some X amount of properties online that are within a 40-minute drive of San Jose, for instance, that's exactly what we need. And the problem is is we have sort of artificial barriers in the way of development of of more properties. An example would be the California Supreme Court just ruled that despite the fact a developer had jumped through all the hoops – done everything correctly and was going to build this planned community, (laughs) this ruling just blows my mind. And even though there were no laws in California relating to this, the Supreme Court ruled that that person did not get to build their development because it would be a excessive carbon footprint. And that, and again, there is no law saying you can't, you can't exceed this carbon footprint if you want to develop. Just some uh, organization petitioned and they somehow won. So the idea that we've decided that that's okay in the face of a ridiculously low supply of properties um, is concerning because you've got, you've got the folks in charge of deciding what gets to happen with property, deciding we're not going to let more inventory come into the marketplace. That's interesting. That's very interesting that – you know, it was, and I, and I, I'm not as knowledgeable about that particular. You know, seeing the crash and seeing the bomb go off, but having that low inventory hitting the market, a lot more people coming in, renting. You know, for longer now, they can't afford to get in yeah. and buy. You know, the American dream of buy their own home. It just seems crazy to me that you know there's not more there's not more of a push for inventory, or or, or, or there's a they're shackling it by the sounds of it. You know, to try and slow yeah. it down. Yeah, it's and the big push because here's the other part: the permits that have been issued for construction tend to be multiple unit, tend to be apartment style development. So clearly, there's sort of a a idea here that what we need to do is create a lot more rental space versus a lot more space that folks can buy. So we'll see how that plays out. I mean, it's important for folks to have a place to live. I I tend to subscribe more to the idea of having a fixed housing cost, which 
you can only achieve with a fixed mortgage. And that obviously takes us away from investors. Investors are playing a different style game when it comes to those decisions. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a big believer in, in maybe taking the shackles off a little bit in terms of being able to get more supply into the marketplace. Interesting. Interesting. This is, it's an incredible conversation, Robert. I could be speaking to you for, for, for hours on end, but I know you are a busy man. So Robert, with all your experience as a realtor here in the United States and a broker, I know you're primed to give me a top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, so I think a daily review, uh, okay. not only a daily review of your currently active goals, but what needs to happen next for those. And then a monthly reevaluation of the effectiveness of the goals that you've set and whether or not they make sense, given the information you have uh, at to hand at that moment. Yeah, love it. Keeping sort of checking in on your, your your goals and making sure you're tracking towards them and setting up the smaller goals to get to those bigger ones. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and I think mixing your goals with following the road less traveled. Um, if if you follow everybody else on the same path, that just equals competition once you get to the head of the line. So uh, that's not a good thing. And I like to use the haunted mansion example. For folks who've been to Disneyland, you come to the haunted mansion, there's a super long line, but there's that second line over to the left. There's no chain going across that saying you can't use it, but why is everyone in that right-hand lane? And you jump into that left-hand lane and discover you can go right up to the front. Everyone just followed the person in front of them. Totally abandon that mindset. Don't assume the guy standing in front of you navigating the maze is smarter than you because the odds are he's not. Yeah, I love it. And we are we tend to do be act like sheep, you know, following everyone else and sure. not, not thinking creatively and not thinking for ourselves. And that's very, very important, I think, when it comes to being a successful entrepreneur in whatever business you are, not just real estate, to keep I totally that, agree. Keep keep pushing the envelope. And if someone's frowning and telling you that it might not work, then hey, maybe keep going down that path because you know vetting your ideas off other people that are, as as you said, Rob, the the road less traveled. So very, very good advice. Uh, Robert, you're in the real estate industry. I know you'd have to have a very influential tool in your business. What is it and why? So I think for me, uh, it's it's the pro- program I actually mentioned earlier. I hate to keep plugging this guy without getting paid for it. <laughs> but um, it's the property evaluator for me is fantastic. Whenever I walk, I'm walking through a property with a client or for my own interests, I'm plugging numbers in to figure out what the exact makeup of this deal would be. I'm very much of a data guy. I'm a little bit of a wonk when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I like the numbers. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy when I can see them all played out and see exactly what I might be able to get for this uh, in terms of it. Maybe not only being a, a home for my clients, but also selling them on the idea that buy this, never sell it, and here's what you can rent it for, and here's what your cash flow would be. Love it. And that, that was propertyvaluated.com or what is it? Uh, actually, it's Property Evaluator. Okay. I have no idea who the guy is who makes it anymore, uh, but that's the name of the software. If okay. you just Google Property Evaluator, I know there's a Mac version, a Windows version. I think they even have an iPhone version. Wow. Great stuff. Robert, most uh, exciting project you're working on right now? You know, I'd love to say something that relates to a client, but it's I'm actually in the process of acquiring land that I'm going to build on. And, uh, and that's about the, 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 the path less traveled really. Um, because that's the one area where I'm seeing almost no competition. You go into the market of trying to buy raw land and there's crickets. There's nobody else around and you get your pick of properties that have been on the market for 400 plus days. So yes. are that's you, where I'm at. 
Are you because um, uh, just a little bit about what I do? I re-entitle land, um, you know, to uh, highest and best use. Are you re-entitling the the piece of land and then building and execution executing on the construction? So what? Yeah. So I'm acquiring the property. It's already the zoning and everything is already appropriate for what I'm looking for. But yeah, we're going to buy it and then we're going to build a house. And the way that the place I'm looking, I'm interested in acreage. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be able to build the house I'm going to live in plus on another set of the acreage, a quote unquote in-law quarters, which I'll then be able to rent for nearly what my payment will be. Wow. Great. That's that's, that's great stuff. Um, Most influential person in your career to date, Robert? Uh, My grandfather. Oh, yeah, of course. What was his name? Uh, Jay Hardiman. There's some, fo- I mean, if anyone out there is exceptionally old, uh, but he used to work with a lot of the stars in Hollywood and, and, uh, I mean, the guy who was uh, Flash Gordon, he, he sold him his house. He sold, uh, Sonny and Cher, he sold them their house too. So, okay. fantastic. And, and last question is best U.S. deal you've done to date? Um, so I guess it depends on how you define best, but I think for me, I take the most pride in the most challenging deals, the ones where I made it work or made it work out for my client when the circumstances were, absolutely working against me. Uh, and that would probably be a Hollister house I sold a few years back where uh, the market was absolutely in the dumps. This is one of those places that did the 50% drop in value and had not come anywhere near recovering and had just tons of homes in foreclosure to purchase. And I was able to get my folks not only asking price, but actually 15000 over asking price in a market where everyone was taking far less than asking wow. price. That's fantastic. So I was, I was pretty proud of that one. Yeah, very good stuff, mate. <laughs> and Robert, final question is, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Sure. Well, there's I've got the site for my show, which is www.therebelbroker.com. Uh, and if so, if you're interested in, in uh, listening to Reed and to me at uh, different times, that would be the place to go. <laughs> if you'd like to ask me more specifically about real estate stuff or, or do things here in my local market, the best site to go to would be www.soldbyrobert.com. Right. And we'll have all those in the show notes below uh, for a summary about today's conversation with Robert. Well, Robert, you gave some incredible information. I just love talking to you. and I could continue to talk to you for the rest of the day. But just to recap on what we spoke about and, and when you are vetting a real estate agent here in the United States and whether you are an American or an international investor, it all, all the rules still apply. And that is asking how many you know, properties they went into escrow and how many did they close? Because just because they closed on 50, they might have actually gone into escrow on 200. And that's not very good, you know, to only close on a quarter of what you may have gone into escrow. That's, that's a, a little bit concerning. And, and, and also asking, um, the right questions on in terms of negotiating skills and making sure that they understand um, the different local laws and not not just following the sheep as we've sort of been talking about on the show, but understanding that you don't just have to you know accept it at face value of what the industry standard has been for for many many years and and educating yourself on that side of it and, and finally making sure that the real estate agent is asking you the right questions as a real estate investor on this show. So thanks, Robert, for dropping by and chatting with us. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Reid. It was a pleasure. Well, there you have it. Another great show full of cracking information. Robert is truly an incredible guest. Thanks, Robert, for dropping by and giving us all the nuts and bolts on the top questions to ask your real estate agent. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Robert and any links we mentioned on today's show. As always, it will go up on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Just remember to click on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge of the US, as that's what we're all about here on this show, continue to grow your financial IQ. 
I know sometimes, guys, you like to give back. If you are feeling generous today, jump online to iTunes, go and subscribe, and give the show a five-star review. It's so quick, it's so easy, and helps international investors start successfully investing in the US. We're going to do all of this again next week, so remember, take care, be safe, and as always, happy investing.